Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone. Thanks very much for joining us today at this press briefing on COVID-19. Um, shortly, we'll have a statement by the regional director, Dr. Hans Kluger, who's sat here in the studio with me. We'll also be joined by uh, Dr. Katie Smallwood from the incident management team here on COVID-19 and the emergencies program. Uh, we'll be joined by Chris Brown, uh, head of the office for the European Office for Investment for Health and Development in Venice, Italy, and also Dr. Sarah Thompson, who's our senior health financing specialist here at WHO, based at the Barcelona office for health system strengthening. So thank you all again for your questions that you've sent to us in advance. We'll get to those shortly, and we'll also be taking some live questions, of course, as per usual, uh, after the regional director's statement. So I will pass the floor to him now to make that. Thank you, regional director. Today, it is just over four calendar months since the first cases of novel coronavirus were officially reported in the WHO European region. Let me provide you with a brief overview of the current situation regarding COVID-19 across the 53 countries and 900 million people living in the WHO European region. As of this week, there have been over 2 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 across the region, and tragically, over 175,000 people have died. Perhaps a less reported but equally alarming figure is that since early March, more than 159,000 excess deaths coinciding with the pandemic have been reported from 24 European countries. These are deaths above and beyond what we would have expected normally at this time of the year. Based on case information reported to WHO, 94% of all COVID-19 deaths were in persons aged 60 years and above, and 59% of all deaths were men. 97% of all deaths with information available had at least one underlying condition, with cardiovascular disease the leading comorbidity. I wish those who are ill from the disease a full and speedy recovery, and I send my deepest sympathy to the people who have lost beloved ones to the virus. Let me also repeat my heartfelt gratitude to those on the front line, in health, social and other services, working relentlessly to save lives. Over the past 14 days, cumulative cases in the European region have increased 15% and the region still accounts for 38% of cases and 50% of deaths globally. The five European countries reporting the highest cumulative numbers of confirmed COVID-19 cases over the past 14 days are the Russian Federation, the United Kingdom, Turkey, Belarus and Italy. Spain, Italy, the UK and France continue to account for 72% of all COVID-19 deaths in the region. Understandably, as the weeks pass, people and politicians alike are eager to reopen businesses and return to workplaces. 48 countries across the WHO European region are adjusting their public health and social measures. The most common measures that are eased first are the opening of non-essential businesses and relaxation of domestic movement restrictions. Let us remember, we are not measuring lives against livelihoods, nor health against wealth. There is not an either-or. There is no economy without people. There can be no economic recovery without COVID-19 transmission under control. Learning from the past and looking to the future, I have three messages today. We must recognize, first, controlling the virus and economic recovery go hand in hand. Second, COVID-19 impacts all, but some more than others. We cannot afford to leave anyone behind. And third, we can build back better, a different economy that is more equal and inclusive. My first message, 
the best way to protect the economy is to protect people. Europe is entering an economic recession. Economic output is set to collapse in the first half of 2020, with most of the contraction taking place in the second quarter. It is then expected to pick up, assuming the virus is controlled. According to the EU's spring economic forecast, and I quote, GDP is forecast to contract by about 7.5% this year, far deeper than during the global financial crisis in 2009, and to rebound by only 6% in 2021. This rebound, however, would leave the European economy at the end of this forecast horizon about 3% lower than the output level implied by the autumn forecast. At WHO, we are concerned that countries will respond to this crisis in the same way they did to the recession 10 years ago. Many countries in Europe responded to that crisis by cutting public spending on health. Between 2008 and 2013, public spending on health per person fell in around half of the countries in our region. Those cuts prevented many people from accessing the healthcare they needed. Unmet need for healthcare increased in 19 out of 28 EU countries, affecting 3 million more people in 2013 than in 2008. Furthermore, up to 9% of households were pushed into poverty as a result of having to pay out of pocket for healthcare. Countries that took the path of cuts to health spending struggled to recover from the economic shock, and we must learn from the mistakes of the past. Today, our priority must be to invest in health, invest in social protection, and above all, avoid austerity, which has devastated the lives of so many in Europe. Investing in health and social protection, especially when the economy is unstable, is the mark of responsible policy action. My second message is, COVID-19 has affected us all, but not all equally. The vulnerable people in society, people in informal work, people close to poverty, mothers living alone with children, have become even more vulnerable as a result of COVID-19. Yet, in recent weeks, we have seen many examples of actions by countries and communities to alleviate insecurity, reinforce the social fabric and support health. In Uzbekistan, social allowances for low-income families have been temporarily extended by an extra six months. In Spain, rental assistance programs have been introduced for homeless people and more substantive income security policies are being introduced. Volunteer organizations in Serbia have helped Roma children with distance learning. In Poland, parents with children under 8 can access an additional 14 days of childcare allowance. Unemployment benefits will be temporarily available to freelancers and self-employed people in Finland. National authorities are providing food, medical supplies and financial assistance to vulnerable people and children in Kyrgyzstan. COVID-19 has highlighted a fundamental truth. When one of us lacks health and care, we are all at risk. No one is safe until everyone is safe. And policymakers have choices, even in the most difficult circumstances. We cannot afford to leave anyone behind. So my third message is this. Recovery must lead to a different economy. We call it an economy of well-being. An economy of well-being means an economy which puts people in the center. An economy which provides a safety net for everyone and protects frontline workers. An economy which contributes to a green climate and environmental sustainability. An economy where public health is seen as a driver of jobs in the health sector, 
particularly for young people and women, and as the safeguard of economy, security and peace. Beyond defeating the disease, the greatest all countries will soon face is whether current feelings of common purpose will shape society after the crisis. As leaders learned in the Great Depression, to demand collective sacrifice, you must offer a social contract that benefits everyone. The leaders at that time did not wait for victory to plan for what would follow. We must mobilize the will from politicians and people alike to create a better society which is fair and safe for everyone. An economy where we leave no one behind. Thank you. Thank you very much, Regional Director. Right, we're going to go to some questions. Um, we're joined by panel members Katie Smallwood, Chris Brown and Dr Sarah Thompson uh, now, uh, uh, particularly regarding this focus and this focus upon uh, and compelling arguments regarding socioeconomic uh, impact of COVID-19. So we have some questions that came to us in advance. I would welcome and invite the press also to raise their hands in the system here so that I can see them, please, with your name and your outlet um, uh, clear to me. That would be, I'd be grateful for that. So, okay, we're going to go to the first question. And I think I'll start with um, Rosie Burchard from Deutsche Welle. Rosie, good morning. Hi there, good morning. Can you hear me fine? We can, Rosie. Please go ahead. Great. Thank you very much. So I've spoken to several hospitals here in Belgium that are seriously concerned about the health risks of illnesses other than COVID-19 going untreated or getting missed because current emergency regulations prohibit hospitals from doing normal procedures like cancer screenings. How much of a risk do you think this represents and do you recommend governments lift these regulations where possible? Thanks very much indeed, Rosie. I'm going to go across to Dr. Katie Smallwood to respond to that. If I could, please, Katie. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rosie. And, and of course, um, as countries have had these uh, significant surges of COVID-19 cases, we, we do understand that uh, there are other unmet needs for, for healthcare that, that may have had to be postponed or stopped. And, and we're still working to understand the true scale uh, of, of the impact on essential healthcare delivery across the region and in specific countries. And, and we're working um, with various countries to do rapid assessments to really understand how much of the uh, health burden uh, has not been met and what the pent up demand for access to healthcare will be going forward. And, and WHO in this period now where countries are beginning to enter a new phase where uh, essential health services are, are starting up again and, and, and looking at bringing patients back into the healthcare system in a safe way, we're looking at a dual lens where countries are really looking at how to continue the essential delivery of COVID-19 response, but also in parallel, how to restart and re-engage our essential health services that may have lost a little bit of time and pick up again. But as we understand in, in most countries, life-saving interventions have continued. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rosie, for the question. And thank you, Katie, for that answer. Right, so I'll next go over to Mariam Gigani from Imedi TV. Mariam? Uh, yes, do you hear me? Yes, we do. Please go ahead, Mariam. Thank you. Okay. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Uh, I would like to address this issue about the uh, a drug called hydroxyl, hydro, I'm sorry, plaquenil. I mean, plaquenil, this name is really hard to pronounce, so I'm sorry. Uh, and we know that World Health Organization suspended to uh, use this drug uh, against COVID-19 uh, and uh, to treat the patients with this uh, uh, patients of COVID-19. Uh, and in Georgia, we have also suspended to use this uh, plaquenil uh, in our patients. However, uh, our chief medical uh, officials say that uh, in Georgian, uh, this uh, drug has not caused any um, 
problems in our patients. However, uh, World Health Organization and the study that was published in uh, Lancet says otherwise. So can you please specify why was the, uh, uh, the usage of this drug suspended for, uh, in COVID-19 patients? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mariam. I'm going to pass that to Katie. This regards hydroxychloroquine. Uh, Katie, I hope you got the question. You're on mute, I think. Thanks. Sorry about that. Uh, thanks for the, the question. Uh, hydroxychloroquine, as, as, as many of you know, is one of the um, medicines that is licensed for other purposes. Uh, but remains an unproven uh, medicine for the use of uh, uh, in COVID-19 patients. It is one of the medicines that is currently under um, WHO's led solidarity trial. And given the recent uh, publications regarding safety concerns in the use of COVID-19, in, in its use in COVID-19 patients, uh, there has been a, a decision by WHO as a precaution to pause the use of hydroxychloroquine enrollment uh, as part of this clinical trial. We'll do this and we will do this temporarily while we review in detail the safety information and the safety data from patients that have been receiving the drug for COVID-19. In general, as you say, uh, there is no proven specific treatment for COVID-19 yet. And WHO has cautioned uh, um, uh, member states and and uh, and all medical entities in the use of unproven uh, drugs for COVID-19, except in the very particular context of clinical trials. And these are trials that are such as solidarity trials that are ongoing and that are being done for research purposes. One word of caution, hydroxychloroquine is used for a range of other illnesses and uh, that are outside uh, COVID-19. And there is no reason for patients that are receiving hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine for other existing conditions to stop their use. Um, it's really in the context of COVID-19 that the safety issues have been uh, 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 arisen. Thank you very much. Right, we'll go over next to Oscar Gozinski, who has um, submitted a, a question in advance, um, and I'll ask the regional director to respond uh, to this, I think. Um, the question is this, um, going into the summer, we're seeing countries opening up their beaches. We see that they are already getting crowded. How risky is going to the beach in the current situation? Although beaches can be crowded, they aren't confined spaces. Do we know if the virus can spread through water? Uh, please, Hans. Thanks, uh, Oscar. We see this indeed in several countries. So we need two things. We need what we call responsible governance and responsible citizenship. It means that the leaders, to look at what are the data are telling us, they need to communicate with the public and understand the public. And from the citizens, we would expect that they listen to responsible leadership. It means that nothing much changed. Know that the lockdowns are being lifted. There is no treatment yet. There is no vaccine yet. So the key issue is the behavior by the people, how the people are going to behave, including, as you say, on the beach and with good weather is going to determine the course of the pandemic. And any places where people are very closely together and sharing uh, uh, foods and, and drinks is, of course, a place which is prone for the uh, infection to spread. So listen very carefully to the advice of the national authorities and to behave in the COVID reality. It's not so much a matter of a post-COVID, but a matter of learning to live with the virus which is there, with physical distancing, with cuff hygiene and washing the hands, etc. Thanks very much, Oscar, and for the question, thank you to the regional director. Um, I will next go over to Naomi Kreschi from Bloomberg News. Naomi, welcome back. Hi, good morning. Thanks good morning. for taking my question. Um, sort of following off the last question, um, here in Berlin, there's a discussion about whether to reopen clubs and bars. Um, and I'm wondering if there's any circumstance in which it might be 
a good idea to open a club or a bar or if you have any thoughts about how to do that in this kind of new reality. Thanks. Katie, opening clubs, opening bars, over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Rob and Naomi. This is a, a really important uh, question and, and one which is not just limited to clubs and bars, but is, is, is extends to all parts of our economy that thrive on people coming together in, in close environments. And as WHO has, has, has very clearly said, there are very specific criteria for countries to, to take into account before they start looking into how to reopen our society in a safe uh, and, and, and sort of staggered way. So the key principles here that um, countries like Germany, and, and Germany is one such country that has demonstrated over a sustained period, uh, a, a really strong decrease in its cases. Germany is also a country that has uh, widespread testing. And, and, and because of that, we, we have a good understanding of how the virus has been transmitting um, within Germany and at the very local level. And these are things that are extremely important as countries start to take these decisions. So opening uh, businesses or clubs, bars, where people do come together will absolutely have to depend on a very strong ability of the health system to know how the virus is transmitting, where it is transmitting. And then most importantly, especially if people are allowed and the decision is taken to allow people to come together in, in closed settings, that as soon as transmission occurs, that the health systems and the disease control systems can very uh, specifically and in a targeted manner, understand where the case is, understand who the contacts are, and ensure that targeted interventions to prevent and break any transmission of the virus can be put in place. Okay, thanks very much, Katie, for that response. Thanks for joining us again, uh, Naomi. Um, we're going to go over next to uh, Sophie Samoshia from Formula TV. We believe that's in Georgia. Sophie? So we have a clearer picture of what we are dealing okay. with. Sophie, um, we, yeah. we're not hearing you very well at all. Could you either speak closer to the microphone? We'll, we'll give it another go. Could you could you start your question again, please? Uh, yes, hello. Do you hear my voice better? Hello? Do you hear me? No, I'm afraid, Sophie, we can't hear you. And I'm, I'm, hopefully you can keep your hand raised if you, if you. Uh, well, I'll come back to you later in the on, on the um, call. Um, so I'm going to go over to Interpress News now to Salom Abulashvili. Salom. Hello, Good morning. hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Thank you very much. Go ahead. Oh, thank you very much. For getting my questions. I have two questions for you today, and nice to meet you again. Uh, as you know, the Georgian economy mainly depends on tourism, which is considered uh, the most uh, affected sector due to pandemic. Georgia is intent to become one of the first countries that will be able to receive international tourists. How would you estimate whether Georgia is a safe country uh, for travelers? And the second one is... Uh, that people are forced to stay home because of COVID-19. That means that economic activity has declined. People can't get paid. How frequently temporary financial assistance is used in Europe? And how do you think this can be a sufficient solution for financial shortcomings for those who have lost their jobs uh, in this process? Thank okay. you. Thank you very much, Salome, for joining us again. Um, I'm going to, the first question regarding tourism and is Georgia a safe country to visit, I'm going to pass over to Katie. And then with the second question regarding uh, the financial uh, impact of this, I'm going to go over to Sarah. Um, so Katie first, please.
Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Salon, for the question. And uh, and of course, as the summer months approach, uh, many countries that have strong tourism or tourism sectors are looking to um, restart those sectors in, in a way that's safe, in a way that the um, all of the provisions are put in place so that tourists, when they arrive in the country, they, they know that uh, they can seek care if they need to. And all of these things absolutely need to be in place, of course. Uh, in Georgia specifically, uh, Georgia, the, the situation will, will continue to evolve and it's very difficult to predict what the situation in Georgia will be one month or two months from now. At the moment, we can safely say that Georgia has done an extremely good job at controlling the transmission uh, of the virus and over the past two weeks has only uh, um, reported uh, less than 100 cases, in fact, to us. So, so it's a country that has really made significant steps in being able to continue the downward trend of transmission uh, at the country level and across the country. This, of course, needs to continue. And, uh, and this will be extremely important for Georgia in, in ensuring that tourists come to Georgia. Um, and and, and this, is, this is something that um, the Georgian authorities will be looking to very, very specifically. In terms of tourists themselves, of course, every country needs also to be ready to be able to manage and detect and safely control any transmission from uh, importation of cases. And as tourists travel around the country, especially in areas that um, are rural, uh, are in the mountainous areas, Georgia will obviously need to ensure that both the uh, accommodation sector, so the hospitality sector, hotels, are able to put the safe provisions in place um, and that the health system is able to, um, to, to, to manage any cases of disease in the areas where tourism is, is, a, is a strong part of the economy. So there's a range of measures that, of course, all countries will be needing to put into place. And the as the situation evolves and as the epidemiology changes, of course, we'll need to relook at what the situation is. But certainly we're looking at how to do things safely rather than preventing from them from happening at all. Very good. Thank you very much, Katie. Uh, now I'm going to go across to Sarah and then I'll ask uh, Chris Brown also to reflect on the second question as well after Sarah. Please. Hi, Rob. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much, Rob. And hello, Salemi. Um, you ask a great question. We know that uh, countries in Europe are facing a very difficult situation at the moment. It's really the first time in Europe that a health shock is leading to a major economic shock. And we understand that countries may be facing very difficult challenges in, in the months ahead and may be looking for ways to cut spending on health and other sectors. One of the lessons that we learned um, from our previous experience of economic shocks is that we strongly advise countries that they should not cut public spending on health and they should not cut public spending on social protection because our research shows that this only leads to further problems down the line. I'm focusing on cuts in, in health spending because these can have real impacts on people. Cuts in, in public spending on health shift costs onto, onto households, healthcare costs onto households, uh, through increased co-payments, through reductions in services, um, and through longer waiting times. If these households, as, you, as you've specified, are already facing financial insecurity, then they are going to be put in situation where they are cases. Do they put uh, food on the table for their families or do they pay for the medications that they need for their chronic conditions like heart disease and diabetes? And the health system can play a very, very important part in making sure that uh, households who are already facing financial security, insecurity, because they've lost jobs, because they've had their wages cut, do not experience further financial hardship. It's particularly important to protect people in poverty, people at risk of poverty, people who have lost their jobs um, from co-payments and other forms of out-of-pocket payments in the health system. Thanks. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um, Chris, would you like to reflect on that as well, please? Maybe yeah, thanks, Robin. Thanks. Thanks, thanks for the um, great question. I mean, just to add on to that, um, every country is facing now this first wave of the economic shock and we're seeing it in, in terms of employment in various sectors. Um, what we do know is that um, maintaining the um, protection for livelihoods through social protection policies linked to housing, food, 
poverty reduction, active labour market programmes is really something that's worth that investment. And if I just give you some figures from our past uh, learning that even conservative investments of social protection policies for livelihoods can protect um, 250,000 lives in a country of 60 million, 10,000 lives in a country of 3 million. So the issue is really to be able to maintain these investments because it protects human capital so that when the economy does start to bottom out and come back, we have a faster bounce back and we have a bounce back that leads to much more inclusive economies. So thanks, Rob. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right. We're next going to go over to uh, Gunilla von Hall from Svenska Dalblow. Gunilla, good morning. Gunilla, you may be on mute. Yes. Can you hear me now? Thank you. We do hear you now. Thank, Thank you. you. Go uh, ahead, please. Uh, thanks for taking my question. Um, I have a question about the the tests to see if you have antibodies. They're becoming more and more um, common. And in my country, Sweden, it's quite easy to buy them. A lot of people are buying them to see if they have antibodies. How reliable do you see these tests being? And how worried are you that these tests would give people a false sense of security? if they have antibodies, as we don't know how protected you really are, how, how long you, your immunity will last or how big it is. Thank you. Thanks very much. Katie, please, uh, tests, reliability, antibody tests. Thanks. Thank you, Ganilla. Uh, so WHO has, uh, has said this before, and I, and I can repeat this, that... Uh, um, the tests that should be used at an individual level to understand whether someone is ill with the virus should be a molecular-based test, which is a, a PCR test. Uh, the serologic tests that are available for use um, should be used at a population level to understand what proportion of the population um, has been infected uh, by the virus. And um, many countries are using different tests, so it's very difficult for me to say precisely with regards to your question um, what, what specificity and sensitivity, which are the terms that we generally use for how effective the test is. It's difficult to say that without understanding what specific test you're referring to. And, and given that there are many tests on the market, this just re-emphasizes the fact that we should be standardizing the use of these tests and um, that they should be used for appropriate purposes. With regards to the use of um, so-called immunity passports, where individual individual uh, tests are used to determine whether uh, an individual could return to work. WHO has issued uh, a scientific brief on that and a statement that uh, um, we do not believe that tests should be used for that purpose. Uh, when it comes to the use of uh, serologic tests and assays, WHO is also working in a number of areas to um, increase uh, the standardization, both of the assays themselves um, but also of the um, uh, panels of serum that are used so that we can start to compare the results of different tests being used across countries and have a bit more of an understanding of how to understand and interpret the data that we're receiving from all of the different surveys and all of the different um, studies that are undergoing at the moment. So this is very much work in progress. Thank you very much, Katie. Uh, we did get uh, in contact, finally, we got some contact from Sophie Samoshai from Formula TV in, in Georgia, who's very kindly sent her questions into us. So I'm oh, going to take- Hello, and thank you very much for uh, the second opportunity. My question is uh, regarding the lessons learned. So we have already some time passed and more studies have been done, more data is available. Could you please comment, what are we actually dealing with? Is there a clearer picture about the virus itself. And the second question, Georgia is now reopening the public uh, transport. What would you recommend to the government and the people for the safety of the passengers and avoiding the second wave? Thank you very much. Okay, Katie, I think you've already kind of answered the second question, um, but maybe the first question. Um, did you catch that question? 
Yes, I, I think so, Rob. Um, and, and, and thank you. And, and I think it, it refers to what we know so far, what lessons we're learning and uh, and what we still have to learn. And I think there are several components to this. First of all, we have learned an, at an incredible speed about this virus. There are more than 17,000 uh, sequences that have been uploaded. We're understanding how the virus is changing. What we do know is we uh, know that the virus is behaving in a, in a relatively stable way, that uh, that the, the disease and is not mutating significantly. The disease is presenting in a similar way in different contexts. Um, and we have a huge amount of knowledge and advances in who is most who is most vulnerable, how the disease affects the elderly, and the older age groups, and as, as the regional director said in his um, opening remarks, um, which uh, comorbidities are most responsible for, for being a factor in having severe disease and outcomes. So we've learned a lot. There remains a huge amount to learn. We still don't fully understand the role of some population groups in transmission. So for example, we still have a lot to learn about the disease in children, um, how susceptible children are, their role in infection, uh, and also the role of other complications that um, have arisen in children over the past uh, weeks and months. In terms of our lessons learned of how we are responding, WHO has spoken about this um, several times, that uh, we are learning and adjusting, and countries are adjusting their responses on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis because of the new information that we're getting. WHO has a very regular, rigorous process of scientific reviews, and we will update our guidance to member states on the basis of changes in the evidence. Uh, this refers to changes in our advice for infection prevention and control, it changes in our advice for clinical management on the basis of clinical trials that are ongoing. So there are still many unanswered questions. Thanks very much, Katie. On this lessons learned uh, point and question, I'll also pass the floor to our regional director. Right. Indeed, many knowns and unknowns. Looking from a uh, macro perspective, it's so important that the society is putting the people in the center because it's really the people who are already vulnerable who get hit disproportionately. And this can be the homeless or the people who uh, have no job. But as much as the healthcare workers, which in many countries, West and East, are disproportionately hit by the COVID-19. So to protect the people who are protecting the sick people is a lesson definitely not to be forgotten. The next one in the same line is a minimum safety net for the people, a society which takes care of everyone. And that comes back to, we need a united action for better health. We need a unity within the country and between the countries, between governments and civil society and the private sector. We see it also for development of vaccines and treatment. The unity and the solidarity that if there is something that we have learned so far, is that one country, even if it's doing a great job, is not standing alone. We are safe only when everyone is safe. Thank you very much, Regional Director. I might actually on this point do a little bit of a tour de table with the panel members. Lessons learned. Um, so, Sarah, I might go across to you to, uh, just for a very brief sort of reflection on that question on lessons learned to date from the pandemic. Thanks, Rob. So I will, I will reflect a little bit, if I may, on lessons learned from the previous economic crisis and, and how that's relevant to the crisis that's coming in terms of the economic shock that the pandemic is, um, is, is leading countries into. And I think the first lesson is that even when times are challenging and governments face very difficult decisions, it's very, very important not to cut public spending on health. We saw that very, very clearly from the previous crisis. Cuts have really negative consequences for households, for real people. So if countries can avoid it, they should absolutely continue to invest in health, even when times are very, very difficult. The second um, lesson that we saw from the economic shock 10 years ago was that even in very difficult circumstances, 
countries were able to mobilize additional funds for healthcare. Many countries were prepared in advance, and I think this is an important lesson for countries to take now. In your health financing system, you can introduce mechanisms, you can build up reserves, have uh, counter-cyclical formulas for transfers from the government budget to social insurance to make sure that as the economy is declining, there is going to be continued investment coming into the health sector. Countries can also act very quickly in response to a crisis. And I think we've seen that in this current, in, in the pandemic today. Many countries have acted really quickly to put more money into the health sector. And we encourage countries to continue to do that um, in the future because health systems are going to need continued investment to protect negative consequences for people. Um, a final thing that I want to say, another important lesson from the previous experience of very, very difficult economic circumstances is that countries always have choices, even when the situation seems really tough. And when it comes to protecting people, uh, to investing in health, this is something that is not only the right thing for countries to do, but it's also very much aligned with the population's preferences. There is an enormous amount of survey material from across Europe, from the OECD countries, that show that, that people really want their governments to do more to protect them uh, in the area of health and in the area of pensions and social protection more broadly. So people want governments to do more in this area. Thanks. Over. Thank you very much. And over to you, Chris. Yeah, just one final comment, maybe on a different perspective. I think what the, what the current learning has showed us is that when we have a crisis, this ability for sectors uh, within government to work with the voluntary sector and peer organisations is really strong. And this has allowed us to be able to identify those most vulnerable, those who may not be able to comply with the, the guidance for staying safe. And that means um, uh, has allowed us to be able to find people who need shelter, uh, to deliver food to people who are suffering from food insecurity. And I think the lesson learned is that these don't just work now. They are going to be important for us for the recovery. So we can do it now. We need to learn the lesson and take that lesson going forward to make sure that we build strong, integrated services that are close to people and respond more quickly to people in vulnerable situations to keep them safe, to keep them healthy and benefit the rest of society. Wonderful. Thank you, all four of you. Um, right. Next, we'll go over to Sam Meredith from CNBC. Sam? Hi, good morning. Can you hear me? Uh, we can. Please go ahead. Yeah, thank you. So at the uh, beginning of today's briefing, if I've understood correctly, the regional director said that of confirmed cases reported over the past two weeks, Belarus was among the five countries recording the highest number of infections. So I wanted to ask how concerned you are about the uptick in new cases in this country, particularly since its response to the outbreak is in stark contrast with most other European nations. Thank you. Thanks very much. Right, over to the regional director to respond to that. Thanks, Sam. Right. Quite soon in the, in the outbreak, we did send the WHO expert mission to Belarus to work with the authorities, which was... Uh, concluded with a press briefing, which is available also on the YouTube. Since then, we have strengthened the technical support in Belarus, which is implementing quite a range of public health measures, be it indeed, as you mentioned, adapted to the uh, national context. And this is something which is ongoing. So there is a continuous dialogue with the country where we have been stressing since the mission and even, in fact, before, in line with the outcome of the recommendations, the basic public health measures, including physical distancing, also have a discussion with the authorities on the sport events and also the importance of postponing or cancelling mass gathering events. Thank you. Thanks very much, Regional Director. We'll next go over to Christine Amira from uh, Net News in Malta. Christine. Can you hear me? We can. Please go ahead. 
Good morning, and thank you for taking my questions. I have two quick questions for you, if that's okay. Um, the first one is, Malta has been registering fewer cases in the past few days, and rumour has it that we will be reopening our airport and it will be resuming its operations by mid-July. Um, how big or how small are the risks of reigniting the virus in the Maltese community by doing so? And my second question is regarding the 159,000 excess deaths that uh, Dr. Klug mentioned. Um, which were registered in Europe in the past months. Um, is there an, an indication of any prominent cause of death in these cases? Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Christine. We go over to Katie. Uh, first question regarding reopening, risk of reopening, and the second question regarding excess mortality. Katie, please. Thank, thank, thank you very much, Christina. And, uh, and indeed, Malta has had a, a, a slowing of the epidemic with um, a small, small incidents over the past month or so um, after an initial peak um, through mid-April. Um, it makes sense for the Maltese authorities to be looking at a transition plan to, to, to look at reopening of borders. This is something that WHO would support in doing. The most important thing to underline here is that any country in reopening uh, borders need to be very much prepared to manage new importations of cases. Uh, what we're seeing is the, the curve being controlled. And this is really optimistic news that countries are able to bring transmission under control. But as, the, uh, as we know, there are still many countries that are having large numbers of cases. The risk of importation is high. Uh, of course, opening borders um, is absolutely necessary for economies. And so we would encourage that Malta has in place every possible measure at points of entries, but most importantly, within its health system, to be able to pick up cases, whether they're imported or whether they're still occurring in the community, to identify contacts from those cases and to break any chain of transmission. As for the specific question around excess deaths, so this is uh, information that we have from uh, Euromomo, which is uh, a network of countries that provide information on all cause mortality. So this is um, deaths that are from all causes and it's not specific to any one disease or cause of death. But what we have seen very clearly is that the peak in excess mortality corresponds in those countries to the peak of the transmission of COVID-19. So this gives us a very good indication that this very significant proportion of this excess deaths is linked and due to COVID-19. Thank you very much, Katie. Very clear. So uh, next we go over to Nino Sipuria, excuse my pronunciation, from the newspaper Kavirius Palitra, which is in Georgia. Um, Nino, please. Hi, do you hear me? We do. Please go ahead. Well, uh, my question is, uh, what has World Health Organization learned from the experience of coronavirus pandemic? Are there any kind of mistakes of experience that you can, uh, that you think can be improved in future? Nino, I think we got that, but could you repeat it a little bit louder, please? Uh, well, uh, uh, are there any kind of mistakes or experience that you think can be improved in the future? What has World Health Organization learned from the experience of coronavirus pandemic? Thank you very much, Nina. We did hear you that second time round. Thanks very much. Very clear. Uh, over to the regional director. Yes, very clear, uh, Nino. There is a um, procedure which has been re-endorsed by the recent World Health Assembly that once that the acute peak of the pandemic ceases, there is what we call a after-action review, which is independent from WHO to learn. And then, accordingly, the, it's up to WHO and its governing body board, meaning the member states, to advise accordingly how to strengthen the governance for the future. And this happened in the past with the H1N1, with the SARS and other pandemics. Here at the WHO Regional Office for Europe, we are not waiting for such after-action review. Proactively, we are conducting what we call a in-action review. Why? Because there is the 
very real possibility of a second wave in many places so that we learn already the lessons from the first wave for the second wave. Obviously one issue which is really very very acute and has been acute is improving now and everyone knows about is the, was the global shortage of personal protective equipment, the masks, the gowns, so this is definitely a very very important lessons which hangs together with the need really to protect our healthcare workers because they are the ones who are really at the front line together with the social workers and people in other services very very close to to the people but again i would like to repeat here the message i was giving in the statement no one is safe until everyone is safe so the need for solidarity which we have been seen growing through the pandemic but which was definitely not where it should be at the very beginning is a lesson to be taken into account thank you very much regional director uh, next i'll go over to ryan hooper from pa uh, uh, ryan welcome back Hello, yes, thank you very much for that. Um, I think uh, just to pick up on something that Dr. Smallwood said earlier, um, just to be clear, please, um, while we wait for a vaccine um, and or a, a treatment, does that mean that there is little realistic prospect uh, of large social gatherings without an effective track and trace system? And if I may, um, to the regional director, please, um, what concerns do you have about the efficacy of government messaging when senior advisors and politicians themselves are deemed to have broken the lockdown rules, as in the case of Dominic Cummings in the UK. Thank you. OK, so Katie, uh, we go to you for the first question, please. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, I can be quite specific here. So uh, a strong surveillance system, which would include the ability to identify cases and their contacts and to uh, quarantine contacts and follow them up for the period of their incubation will be essential um, during this period, in the next period, and even when we have a specific treatment um, and a vaccine, if we're still seeing outbreaks caused by COVID-19 at that stage. So this is a core component of any response, and it should be in place in countries in all transmission scenarios. And we've talked about the different transmission scenarios uh, very much in the past few months, but when we get to co uh, context where countries have been able to control their community transmission and bring it down to clusters or even sporadic cases or, or to uh, situations where the only cases that they're seeing are imported cases, the ability for, this, uh, for countries to implement robust, functional and rapid uh, surveillance of cases, identification of contacts, and follow-up of contacts will be crucial in uh, the ability to maintain interventions at a targeted level. And this will prevent countries and prevent communities from having to implement, again, widespread, broader measures for community-wide social and physical distancing. So really, surveillance systems, the ability to respond quickly, to identify cases, to isolate them, and to follow up contacts will be crucial in avoiding us to have to reinstate some of the measures that we have been taking in the past few months. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Katie. And over to the regional director for the second question. Right, what I see here, Ryan, is that there is a need for two elements. One is what we call responsible governance. It means that the leadership is listening to the public health and epidemiological data communicates with the public and very important to build trust. Like, for example, we have been seeing in uh, most of the or all of the Scandinavian countries, this partnership between the people and the politicians. And then second, we need responsible citizenship, which means for the citizens to listen to trustful, responsible governance. Thank you. OK, thanks very much. We're going to go over to uh, Tom Magna next from Carers World. Tom, welcome back. Thank you very much indeed. Had some mic problems last time, uh, but good that I'm back in. Uh, just picking up on that last question, um, you're saying that countries need to respect people and that people should trust the authorities. The UK government still believes in austerity, austerity is allowing businesses to reopen without making sure that 
arguably reliable anti-COVID-19 measures are physically in place. And beach overcrowding shows there's enough personal thoughtlessness around to override any health message. So how socially responsible is it for a government to put the economy first and the vulnerable second in these demonstrable ways? The regional, regional director, please. Right. Since the very beginning, this has been a balance between protecting the health of the population, economic and social implications, and the well-being of the population. And we have issued, in fact, crystal clear guidance on countries how and when to transition out of the restrictive measures, that it has to be driven by public health and epidemiological data, number one. Number two, really to listen to the people, the voice of the community. No, any pandemic has been pushed back without a whole-of-society approach. The third one, the health system and the public health has to have the capacity to deal, identify, isolate, test, track, trace, treat, and need to be very important, very well and enough resourced. So these are key elements that need to be in place for countries to consider to move out of the measures. The two key words are gradually and carefully, with a flexibility to cycle a little bit forward and a little bit backward, to impose and release restrictive measures. Thank you very much. Um, thanks for the question, uh, Tom, as well. So I'm next going to go to Judith Sajanski from Club Radio Budapest, who has submitted a question in advance to us. Um, is there any cooperation between Hungary and WHO on the treatment of coronavirus regarding the hydroxychloroquine of which Hungary has stockpiles and banned its export earlier? We had a question earlier regarding um, hydro sorry, hydroxychloroquine, um, but Katie, maybe this is a bit more specific. Maybe you could, you could respond to that question. Thank you. Thank you. I think there are several components to this and I won't repeat um, uh, what I said regarding the safety concerns around hydroxychloroquine in the use of COVID-19 patients. Only to say, only to add that in the specific case of Hungary, and of course it's not a specific case, several countries have uh, imposed export bans on essential COVID-19 items such as personal protective equipment, um, specific medications and, and other commodities that have been um, in, perceived as being or in short supply. Um, WHO has been pleased to hear that over the past couple of days, several countries and, and uh, the European uh, uh, Union countries have released some of these export bans and that trade will be occurring. But uh, in terms of hydroxychloroquine specifically, uh, again, just to reiterate that uh, WHO's advice is that uh, as an unproven treatment for COVID-19, it should only be used in the context of uh, clinical trials and under close, very close medical supervision uh as as a as a treatment that is still under uh research and is currently paused in the context of the solidarity trial thank you very much katie and uh finally as we approach maybe one more question so we'll go over to Carlotta gull who's with us today Carlotta. hi good to hear from you. you thank you um I'm, I'm in Istanbul, but my question is actually about Idlib, northwest Syria. Uh, I understand that WHO has supplied test kits for them, um, and they've done, when I last spoke to people, at least 500 PCR tests, but not a single case testing positive. Um, some people are questioning, is that... Um, is that normal? Would it's is surprising that they haven't had any cases? Um, and is there a concern at all among you that tests you provided were not sufficiently, you know, were not um, whatever the word is um, correct or or um, working? Um, or or do you have any other answers to what's happening in Idlib? Thank you. Thanks very much, Coletta, and thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we, we go over to Katie with, with, for a response, please. 
Thank you very much, Carlotta. And uh, uh, of course, Syria is in the Eastern Mediterranean region, but uh, through the WHO Europe office, um, we provide um, specific support to northwestern Syria in the context of the UN Security Council resolutions um, that are relevant to that. Uh, we have a team that has been working out of Gaziantep um, in southern Turkey to support um, Operation WHO's humanitarian response. And through that, we've been working with a range of systems in place in northwestern Syria for the early warning and, uh, and response to uh, epidemic diseases. Um, and it's been an extremely, uh, extremely strong collaboration with health authorities and, and local, um, local partners. Um, and we've picked up a range of um, outbreaks that have occurred, such as measles, the polio outbreak back in 2014. And we've been working with uh, teams on the ground in northwest Syria, specifically in the area of testing severe acute respiratory illnesses in the context of influenza. And so we're quite confident that the capacities uh, in northwest Syria are there. We have indeed provided testing kits and we're in collaboration and in discussions with them for any um, uh, positive tests to be, then be confirmed with other laboratories and reference laboratories in the European region. So um, indeed, we've not received any positive samples um, from Northwest Syria, but we are working with the teams there. And as soon as there are indications of any suspect cases or confirmed cases from the lab testing, um, we'll be following up specifically with partners there. Thank you very much for the question. Thank you very much, Katie. Okay, so we're at the top of the hour. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us today. Thanks also to the panel members and to the regional director uh, for responding to those questions. And it only remains for me to say uh, thank you very much and take care. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>